this is Patrick Daly and welcome to Interlinks. Interlinks is a program about international business and globalization and the effects these have had on our life, our work and our travel over recent decades. There's a little bit of history, a dash of economics, a sprinkling of business and an overlay of personal experience, both for me and from my interviewees from around the world. Today, we will be talking to David Evans, who will be joining us from Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. David is originally from Dublin and has been living and working in the Middle East now for over 15 years. Currently, David is a consultant to private clients in construction and development sectors, covering everything from design and tender through to the project management of delivery and project closeout. Until last year, David was CEO of the construction arm of the Al Nabuda Group, one of the major business conglomerates in the Emirates. Previously, David was a global major products director with Honeywell Building Solutions, also in Dubai, and before that had stints with Acom, Lang O'Rourke and Duffy Construction. So welcome, David, and thank you very much for being here with us today. Thank you very much, Patrick. Good, good to be here, and thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me on. You're very welcome. Just to kick off, Dave, could you give us a kind of a brief overview of your career uh, to date in the in the international construction business? How did you get from kind of South County Dublin to Dubai in 2020? It's a good, good question, Pat. I think um, it's kind of split into two halves. Uh, the first half was, was, was on the trades in, uh, as a carpenter in, in, on the sites in London, uh, and then at home and stints in Europe, uh, the US and Canada through the 90s and early 2000s. And then in 2004 was probably the big break to, from, from an international perspective. Um, it was my last project in London was Heathrow Airport Terminal 5 mm-hmm. uh, with the Lang O'Rourke Group, uh, a name you'll know at home, um, one of the biggest uh, family-owned construction uh, groups in the UK. And from that project, um, I got transferred out to a Lang O'Rourke subsidiary, or a, J- a JV partner out in Dubai. So Lang O'Rourke were, were bought up the old Lang Construction Group in the UK. Mm-hmm. And part of the Lang Group was Lang, John Lang International, who had a division out here in Dubai from the late 70s through, through the 80s and the 90s. And in 2004, they picked up the contract for Dubai International Airport, as, as we know it today. And it was the main, the main uh, transfer terminal, Terminal 3. So a few construction managers and project managers were chosen from uh, the UK business to go out to Dubai. Mm-hmm. On what was supposedly a, a six-month secondment, it was supposed to be go out there for six months and, and help that project uh, uh, over the line, get it turned around, and then you'll come back uh, to the UK. And then uh, in 2004, the Lang O'Rourke Group in Dubai started to get really busy because that coincided with the start of the boom here in Dubai. So that kind of led to, from Dubai Airport, led to uh, Mall of the Emirates and Ski Dubai, which is one of the big, big malls here. Uh, and the big uh, ski center, which is adjacent to it. And then the following project was uh, Atlantis Hotel on the Palm Island in Dubai. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing just kind of snowballed from that path. And then um, that was uh, took us through from about 2004 to 2010. And then I left uh, the Langaro Group to join ACOM uh, and was on projects in Abu Dhabi, namely the museum projects, the Guggenheim Museum and the Louvre Museum in Sadiad Island in Abu Dhabi. And that coincided in around 2011, 2010, 11, with the kind of slowdown here in uh, the UAE. And I got transferred to Doha in Qatar to build the uh, new deepwater seaport there and the Qatari naval base. Mm -hmm. And that was two years in Qatar. And then I came back to the UAE and joined uh, the Honeywell Group. And Honeywell, the name you'll know, it's a big American conglomerate. um, And they were embarking on international projects, major international projects, which they hadn't really done a lot of before. So I came in and joined them in 
2015 and set up the Global Major Projects Division in, in Dubai. So we kind of ran a lot of the big projects out of Dubai. Um, we set the projects up, we set up the management operating system. So it was hospitals in Canada, uh, you know, prisons and, and correction facilities in Australia, Changi Airport in, in uh, Singapore, uh, airports in Turkey, airports in Dubai, um, Apple Campus in, in uh, the new Apple building in California, Cupertino, California was one of our projects as well. So that kind of was the, the culmination of the international side, Pat, and how kind of one thing led to the other. Um, but the, the, the kind of international side and the global side would have been the biggest uh, during the Honeywell days. That was more the global role as opposed mm-hmm. to stationed here in the Middle East, yeah, if well, that makes sense. Yeah, 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 very much. Um, so you're talking there about period, I guess you would have entered the business sometime in the 80s, mid to late 80s. So we're talking 30 years or more. So how has the international construction business changed during your career over, mm-hmm. that, over, over those three decades? Um, I suppose you'd kind of split it into to, to four or five uh, components, but the, one of the biggest uh, improvements has been definitely has been safety. So health and safety was a kind of a, a secondary thought in the 1980s when I first entered into the industry. Um, you kind of looked after your own safety. Um, you weren't given helmets at the, you know, at the start of the job. You weren't given high visibility belts. There was no safety nets. There were no harnesses. All that kind of stuff was just about coming in. So probably one of the biggest uh, benefits and the biggest changes in, in, in the years I've been in it is the, is the you know, taking seriously safety, health and safety, and making sure people are going home safe uh, after their day's work. That's been one of the big, the big mm-hmm. changes. The second big change is probably there's been a huge transfer of risk from the client side down onto the contractors and the consultant side. So in the 80s, um, the contractors, the main contractors like the Langs and the Costains and the Woodrows, Taylor Woodrows and people like that, used to be purely construction contractors. They didn't do any design. They didn't do any you know, uh, checks. They didn't do any inspections. They were, they were purely contractors and carrying out the work. But over the last 20 or 30 years, that kind of design liability and design uh, responsibility has shifted down onto the contractors where they've taken on the design elements now they get a they get a concept design a concept stage and then they take away the design and they complete the detailed design and take on the risk associated with that so a lot of the risk transfer has gone down onto the contractors now mm-hmm. which is something that you know we, took a long time to get used to and contractors had to adjust to uh, over time that was the second thing. And then from, you know, technology point of view, there's been huge advances in digital engineering, for example. So when I was starting, it was AutoCAD and, and now you've got BIM. So, uh, you know, 3D modeling, 4D modeling, uh, digital engineering with flash detection, with basically they can build a building on a computer now and uh, all the different uh, sectors are, are built on a single model. And all the different disciplines are, are done on that model from frame through structure, through MEP, through, you know, electrics, through everything right through to finishing landscaping that can be done on the model. Um, and it cuts out a lot of the, the, the clashes and the design flaws and defects and stuff that we used to have in the old days, whereby it's all it's all done on the model now and it's uh, it's much easier and quicker. And then another another big change would be modularization. So what a lot of companies are pressing for now is off-site fabrication. And you'll see a lot of that coming in in the UK and Ireland now. It's very far advanced there, but it's not so far advanced in the Middle East as yet. But it is coming in. So that's that's where you you would take, let's say, let's say you have a student accommodation block or a hotel or something with a lot of repetition in it. So you would you would actually build the student rooms off-site in a factory or the bathrooms for a hotel. Let's say there's 1,500 rooms in a hotel. You'd build the bathrooms off-site. You'd kit them out with, with, with all the sanitary wear, with all the fixtures and fittings, paint them, and then you bring them to site, 
uh, in a frame and you lift them up in the crane and put them into site and you connect your electrics and connect your water and that's it, it's done. So a lot of off-site fabrication is taking the place of on-site uh, works, which reduces waste, which you know gives a lot of efficiencies, gives a lot of better safety, takes men off-site, takes men off dangerous uh, works, hazardous works. Uh, and modular is definitely coming in in a big way, especially in the States. And then the last probably big change would be would be green, green building and, you know, sustainable building. So that's coming in in a big way and has done over the last 10 to 15 years um, through basically what we call the LEED, L-E-E-D rating system, which is leading with engineering and environmental design. And this has come from the U.S. Uh, green Building Council, actually. They've pioneered this and, and are driving this and have done over the past few years. And basically, Pat, what, what it means is, you get a lead score for your building depending on how green and how carbon free it is and your scores go from zero which is you know completely carbon free building which is absolutely uses no energy and all renewable mm-hmm. then you go to platinum which is the highest points below zero down to gold down to silver and down to certified so if you've got a building that's designed with you know uh, intelligent systems in it and connected systems in it where the lights are going off at night the escalators are going off and no one's using them uh, the taps are not running, uh, you've got uh, energy efficient light bulbs, you've got energy efficient systems, you've got energy efficient operation and maintenance systems in the building, then you get higher points for that. And in the US, if you've got a LEED certified building that's platinum, you'll get tax breaks on it, you'll get you know a lot of uh, rewards for that. So there's a big drive to get LEED certified buildings in place. And that's, you know, almost every construction project you come across now is striving for a LEED. Uh, score or a similar kind of environmentally friendly uh, system. And is LEED, so is, is LEED recognized worldwide or is there a different system it, in Europe? It is. It's recognized worldwide. Pat. So everywhere I've worked, LEED, lead are, are, are there at the forefront. And it's it's a fantastic system because, you know, it, at the heart of it is is safe, you know, healthy, sustainable buildings. It's not just the energy side of it. It's, it's, it's you know, with the construction yeah. and the, the materials they're using in construction. And it spans all through. You can have a LEED city. You can have a LEED neighborhood. You can have a LEED house. You can have a lead hospital, a school, hospitality center, retail center, warehouses, distribution centers, healthcare. It spans all sectors, Pat. So it's really, really good. It's really, really well thought out. It's really, really well regulated and, and governed and, and highly respected in the industry. So that's been a huge, mm. a huge boon to the industry and definitely one that everybody's striving for, which is good. Yeah. You know, the way in manufacturing and finance, we hear a lot about, you know, how they've benefited massively from processes of globalization since around 1970 more, more or less and that's been driven yeah. by deregulation and by innovations in uh, IT and communications technology and also in transport mm. and logistics so how's the construction industry been impacted by these kind of drivers of globalization I guess the fact that Lang were in Dubai I guess is a kind of manifestation of that globalization in construction isn't it? It, it is yeah from from the 70s and 80s and you know it used to be always the, 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 the dream job to get was to go out to one of these expat postings out in the Middle East because it was seen to be, you know, uh, tax free and blah, blah, blah. But it wasn't uh, it wasn't the posting. It was, you know, in the 70s and 80s because there wasn't air conditioning and, you know, driving around Land Rovers through the desert trying to set up ports and airports and stuff. It wasn't all it was cracked up to be because yeah. um, I talked to a few of the guys out here when I got here and there's some good stories behind that. But anyway, in terms of globalization, um, what I'd say it's impacted quite heavily is is design resources, Pat. So, for instance, when we got here in 2004, all our design for uh, steel construction for the airport building, for the terminal building, was done out of India. And it was done out of India where we had really good designers there on AutoCAD who could turn out, uh, you know, designs for slabs and columns and beams, decks and walls and, and structures. 
at a fraction of the price that it was costing us to get designs from the UK. Mm. So that was the kind of first, uh, you know, advent of that, where you saw design resources coming in a lot cheaper from the Philippines or from India or from Bangladesh or, you know, anywhere across the Indian subcontinent, they, they stole a march from that. And that was the place to get a lot of your design done. Mm. And then, you know, globalization from, as you're describing it, um, you know, steel was coming from wherever you could get it ch- at cheapest from. So in Dubai, you were getting it from Turkey, you were shipping it in from, you know, Greece, you were shipping it in from, uh, wherever you could get it from and at, at the right price and you know they'd ship it wherever it was coming from even in some cases from the far east you could get steel cheaper uh, depending on the nature and the grade of the steel so from the 90s through to the early 2000s it was really starting to boom from a globalization as uh, point of view but if you take it from like uh, construction methodology and construction on sites that's still very geographic pat so if i'm working in australia or the far east or the states or the uk they still have their own kind of systems that are kind of generic and tailor made to their own geography and their own regions so the aussies do frames and structures one way the U- the us guys do them their way and the europeans do them their way so those kind of their ways and methodologies haven't changed but the kind of rules and the governance behind it has changed from a globalized point of view in the sense of design and uh, supply chains that supply those projects. So, for instance, like the Atlantis Hotel in on the Palm Island in Dubai, when we we're doing that, they were the first kind of to go to China for a lot of their sourcing. And they were able to find that the, you know, the reputation that China had at the time wasn't great for quality in QAQC, but they, they sent the guys out to the factories, they did the factory visits, and, and the quality and the standards are very, very high. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the stuff for that hotel came, came through China and also from, from Vietnam. A lot of the, the timber uh, products and the, the shit-out products and the furniture and stuff like that came from the Far East, yeah. and that was a first for the UAE going to the Far East for their supplies. So it's kind of evolved over time, Pat, but it's definitely, it's it's on the world stage now. And, and, and you know, all cards are in play in respect to supply chain and where you get your stuff from. Yeah, and now maybe a more general question on, on globalization. So, you know, over the last four years, we've had uh, Brexit and we've had uh, Trump in America and trade wars and all of that type of thing. Where do you think mm. we are with, with globalization? Are we stalled? Are we going backwards? Is it a blip? What's your own kind of take on it? Um, I think it's it's interesting you mentioned the, the, the Trump situation because I'm currently working on a project in, in Vietnam and we're, we're uh, restructuring a, a big major construction company over there. Um, what we're seeing there is um, we kind of had a look at it in, uh, at the end of last year and what we were seeing was a lot of the U.S. companies who were based in China were going to move out of China and move to Vietnam because of the uh, the threat of a trade war. And the threat of sanctions and the threat of Trump, you know, uh, coming down heavy on these these outsourcing companies. So a lot of them were going to move to Vietnam because there was a cheaper uh, cheaper base there, cheaper labor costs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Very good infrastructure, very good uh, ports and airports and and uh, all the things that these companies need. And then as 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 COVID hit through, you know, February, March, and April when, when I was out there. Um, another kind of geopolitical situation and world pandemic shelved all of that. So a number of factories that were going to be set up by American companies in that were moving from uh, China to Vietnam said, well, look, nobody's buying our products now because of the pandemic. We were at uh, 100% capacity. We needed to go to 150 and now we're down to 50% capacity. So we won't be building our factory. Mm. So a huge chunk of work and foreign direct investment that was going to come into Vietnam I suddenly got got shelved because of the uh, because of the pandemic situation. So 
that was a trigger by that was triggered by the U.S.-China trade war that was going on at the time, where the companies were, were hedging their bets and getting out. So that was one example of you know geopolitical tensions uh, having an effect, and then the pandemic absolutely you know devastating yeah. those. And um, in terms of, of, of nationalism, um, I'm not so sure if it's affecting construction so much on a, on a global scale, Pat, because you know it tends to be quite regional mm-hmm. in terms of who the clients are, and uh, you know most most construction is is home based and domestic based, and um, unless you're a developing economy like Vietnam, where you're very heavily dependent on foreign direct investment, which they are, and it's been absolutely kind of decimated. But you know once things are under control in terms of pandemic and in terms of vaccine. Uh, make no doubt about it, Vietnam will definitely be on the rise and it's very well, very well positioned from a geopolitical point of view to take advantage of the US-China trade war, no question. Yeah. So it seems like globalization is maybe going to change form rather than uh, reverse, so that's probably the way it's going to go from what you're saying there. Just on, on yeah. you, you, with you working uh, internationally in so many different places, and I've, I've been on business in, in the Emirates and it's very diverse in terms of the, the working uh, yeah. backgrounds of the people that you're in, in, interacting with. So with you, with, you know, dealing with people with different geographic, ethnic and cultural backgrounds, what kind of um, surprises have you encountered in relation to both the differences and the similarities working across cultures that like that? Um, that's a very good question, Pat. Um, I think, you know, in construction, it tends to attract the kind of certain individual that, uh, you know, it seems like a lot of stress and, uh, you know, um, problem problem solving and stuff. It's very, it's a very uh, unique industry and construction projects are a very unique kind of um, situation to be involved in. They're extremely stressful where there's 100, 110 things go wrong. Um, but it tends to uh, you tend to find the same kind of people there who are you know get 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 stuck in. So there's a, there's a construction the there's a construction brotherhood across the world, is there? <laughs> <laughs> there seems to be. We're all a bit touched, I think, Pat, in some ways to have gone into it, you know. Um, but you you tend to find that the national characteristics don't change from region to region, from geography to geography, by the guys who are in construction, either at the front end on the tools and, and down in the trenches doing the work or the engineering or the managerial guys who are in the background with an engineering degree or a quantity surveying degree or whatever, you have that kind of sense of, um, uh, it's a very highly pressurized situation and uh, fairly thankless, uh, but very satisfying when you do get the buildings finished and, and hand them over. So from a from a, a national or a cultural or an ethnic or a geographic uh, point of view, there isn't really huge, the characteristics don't change, Pat, in the individuals. Mm-hmm. and. You know, on terms of management operating systems that I implement across different geographies or different continents, you kind of have a one-size-fits-all in a lot of cases whereby the safety rules don't change, the quality rules don't change, the implementation rules don't change, the methodology of how to put up a shell and core and and a structure and and a finished building don't change. But you need to have certain tweaks and certain uh, nuances to how you implement that because in other senses, it's not a one-size-fits-all because there are there are national characteristics to be taken taken into account. Like, for instance, the Indian guys we have working for us in 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 Dubai, and there's a huge hierarchy system there whereby you know won't be tied any any Western guy who comes in and gives the wrong job to the wrong guy, <laughs> or makes him look above his station, or or mixes it up with the with the wrong kind of. Um, you know, social groupings. It's it's very very distinct what what you do, um, and it's the same in Vietnam as well. They're very very uh, very very conscious of title, of uh, position, of respect, um, and and this is something that you have to take into account uh, when you go there. Like for instance, in Vietnam, when when I first went there, 
there's a huge uh, emphasis on etiquette for meetings and business meetings. So, you know, things like when somebody gives you a business card, you don't just put the business card into your pocket. You have a good look at it and you acknowledge it and you show your sign of respect and nod your head, et cetera, et cetera. And because yeah, that's a sign of respect, his business card is his title. That's his position in society and the company. Yeah. And you have to kind of acknowledge that. And then it's, it's handed over with two hands and all of that kind of thing. Yeah, it's that, that, it's that. Yes. And then you wait for the oldest person to come into the room before the meeting starts and the oldest person in the room starts the meeting and you need to know when to listen and when to speak and when to, when to shut up and not say anything. And these are etiquettes that you, you learn over time that if you're not careful and don't do your kind of homework before you go there, yeah. um, you'll end up uh, offending people quite easily. So from a construction site point of view, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty regular and standardized across different geographies. But in terms of meeting and etiquettes in respect to nationalities, you need to be very aware of it, especially in the Far East and especially in, in the Indian subcontinent as well. Yeah, I've been involved uh, work-wise with some uh, construction projects in, you know, my role as a kind of consultant in logistics and supply chain. Mm -hmm. um, and they always kind of reminded me of kind of, you know, movie, making movie projects. You got all of these kind of diverse people coming together very much for a, a defined outcome, defined price, defined time. And they come together and they make it happen and then it happens and then they all go away again. Uh, and it yeah. stru struck me that, you know, the governance and the relationship management challenges must be quite, quite, quite difficult. So how yeah. important is that facet of, of this business in your opinion? And how, how do you approach it? it it's hugely important, uh, Pat, and relationship management is, is, is part and parcel of that because, as you say, it's so well put. It's like putting a movie together and you have so many independent parties who are all trying to make a book and who are all trying to get out on time and who all have a myriad of a thousand different problems to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis because every day is different. That's the one thing about construction. No day is ever the same. And construction is about managing change because it changes on a day-to-day -day basis as well and stuff gets thrown up at you that you don't expect. But in terms of uh, managing the different parties, you could have anything of 40 to 50, maybe 60, 70, 80 different subcontractors on one project that are all vying for space, all vying for attention and all vying for priority. Um, and you have to really program that quite efficiently and make sure it's uh, scheduled out correctly. And then it's a question of communication, Pat. It's the secret of good business across across any business is, is communication. So, you know, I, t I tend to run projects when I was running projects back in the day. You'd have your morning meeting with the guys first thing in the morning and, and last thing at night if there was a night shift going on. And it was a kind of, you know, bird's nest table in the room, a meeting table, and you had all your subcontractors in the morning, right? You're going here. You don't go there. You're in there today. You're down that section today. So everybody's kind of bought into the, the day ahead. And everybody knows where they're going and, and, and is coordinated properly. And if you didn't do that, um, you know, you were in trouble because it just wouldn't work. Mm. And then you have things like crane time. Who's got the crane for, for how long? Who's got the forklift for how long? Who's got the hoists for how long? Because there's only so much logistical uh, equipment to go around. So it was a question of setting that up. Uh, properly and you had you typically you'd have what you'd call a site coordinator on site who was your kind of mr fix-it guy he'd be a good construction manager and all his job was to do all day was to coordinate the site and if you as the project director or a project manager weren't getting phone calls every 10 minutes it meant he was doing his job properly mm. so the thing was flowing um, and uh, these coordinators were worth their weight in gold. But uh, in answer to your question, Pat, it's it's communication, simple communication. It's the secret and it's the key to it. And, you know, respect and, and integrity with, with all these people and all the parties and trying to be fair and even with, with, with all of them. Yeah, yeah. All right, so as we're coming into kind of now the final stretch of the interview, so I'll kind of change tack a little, maybe just ask you a little bit about yourself. So outside of work, what kind of things do you like to do, say, in terms of hobbies and pastimes? And I guess being in, in, in the Emirates, I guess that's going to be different than if you were living here in Dublin, right? 
It is. It is very much so. Yeah, Pat. So I've, I've got uh, three boys. I've got a, a 14-year-old, a 12-year-old and a, and a 10-year-old boy. So they, they keep me busy <laughs> at weekends with, with various sports and stuff. Um, and then I'm a keen uh, scuba diver. So I do a lot of scuba diving mm-hmm. here in the UAE and the boys are, are, are doing it as well and have taken it up. So we're very lucky here in the sense that as we, you know, the Emirates, Pat, you've been here before, but as you cross over to the eastern side of the Emirates on the other side of the Straits of Hormuz, which is Fujira, which is one of the seven Emirates, you're actually on the Indian Ocean there. Mm-hmm. So with the diving over that side and then down towards the Oman border and into Mo- Oman and Muscat, the diving is, is fantastic over there because you're in Indian Ocean. So you're getting the coral reefs and the marine life that you'd get the same that you'd get in the Maldives or any other Indian Ocean famous dive site. So we're very lucky in that sense. And we do quite a lot of scuba diving. Um, hiking is, is good here in the mountains. There's a mountain range between uh, Dubai and Oman, the Hajar Mountains, which is uh, quite rugged and, and good for hiking in the wintertime especially. And then I'm, I'm a keen rugby fan, so if I'm not doing those, I'm, 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 I'm catching the games that are coming through for the Leinster, Irish, or, or Lions games that are, that are coming through on TV. And the, the time zone works pretty well. We're three hours ahead. Yeah. So the games are on, you know, three, four, five in, in the in the afternoon or evening in Dublin. We catch them in the evening here. So so it's really, really good. So kids, scuba diving, rugby, and, and hiking is my thing, Pat. And I do a, I do an annual hike every year with a group of friends. We, we take off somewhere in the world and pick one of the world hikes like Yosemite or, or Mont Blanc or, or one of those... Uh, hikes and we do that every year a group of us but obviously haven't this year unfortunately but yeah looking forward to next year's one so those are my hobbies Pat, predominantly uh, but the time is uh, predominantly to the kids obviously at that age yeah excellent i know i know you like to keep up to date as well and um you know with what's going on here so in terms of reading that i guess you're reading the news the whole time but have you read anything lately that kind of inspired you or that you'd recommend to listeners um yeah i, I keep in touch with the news at home pat it's a uh, obviously of interest to me uh, and um you know it's uh it's an up and down situation as we're seeing there and very interesting but in turn i'm a, I'm a very keen uh, reader as well i've always got a book on the go and one of my keen interests i'm a keen student of uh, american political history and especially American presidents around the turn of the 19th century and, and early 20th century. So through, you know, from basically from Lincoln right through to, uh, you know, Kennedy, etc. I have a very keen interest in that. So um, funnily enough, I'm, I'm reading one at the moment called Leadership in Turbulent Times by an author called Doris Kearns Goodwin. Yeah, I know her. Who's yeah. one of the top, you know, best-selling art, uh, authors in the U.S. on you know that you know the name yet. Yeah, and, I think um, she wrote a biography of Lincoln. I think did she, she? she did. She did, and she did Conrad Black, and she did uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. She's done a couple on uh, Theodore Roosevelt, etc. So she's the real kind of doyen of, of, of American presidential writing, and very good on the National Library of Congress and all the, the background to that. She's she's very very uh, well informed and very good a writer. She kind of brings you back into the times. But the the interesting one about now is because it's called Leadership in Turbulent Times and she deals with uh, Lincoln, she deals with Teddy Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt and Lyndon Johnson and how the four of them were impacted by kind of traumatic uh, times in their lives. Uh, obviously, Lincoln had the Civil War and uh, Teddy Roosevelt, his, his, his wife and uh, mother died on the same day. And uh, Franklin Roosevelt obviously had polio and and, and got through that. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lyndon Johnson had 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 big uh, defeats in 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 uh, the Senate, which he he barely recovered from. So she takes those kind of uh, hits in life and deals with each of the presidents in turn and the way they got through them, and how they fought back and how they kind of just backed themselves, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and pushed themselves to, to 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 get over it and get out of it. And then how they dealt with uh, turbulent times like, you know, like um, Lincoln would have come out of that situation, Civil War, through to the the Emancipation Proclamation and Mm. got through that, as we know. And then 
uh, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, recovered from what he did and went through to 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 become governor of New York and uh, the police chief of New York and then president, and how he kind of built himself through that. And Franklin Roosevelt through the polio and how he got over that and pushed himself to 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 actually you know win, do win, what he win did. the war basically yeah I, I dare say I, I dare say there'll be a few books written about the current incumbent as well when the time comes. <laughs> I don't think they'll be as, as complimentary, but she's very she's a very good author and she she comes up with some very funny anecdotes in the in the story as well, which um, yeah it, it helps the book a lot uh, move the book along. But it's just good to see how these guys kind of dealt with the with the trauma in their lives and and, and got back and back on the horse and. Uh, make great great things for themselves all right dave we'll have to uh leave it there for today um it's been a pleasure talking to you david as always uh, many thanks for being here with us today great to talk to you as well and thanks very much for inviting me on you're very welcome thanks also to our listeners and remember that if you'd like to find out more about globalization international business and how we can help you to formulate and implement business strategies that deliver please check out my blog and website on albalogistics.com and my book, International Supply Chain Relationships, which can be purchased on Amazon and Google Books. This is Patrick Daly of Alba Consulting. Goodbye and keep well until next time.